Let's now turn to the first epistle of John. First John, and we'll read chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. In connection with our scripture reading, we also turn in our book of forms and prayers to uh, the Belgic Confession, Article 1, the, the Only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this evening we're beginning a series of sermons on uh, the Belgic Confession, and particularly this first article of our confession, and we're going to be giving uh, focused attention upon uh, the attributes of God, or rather the, the knowledge of God, the revelation of God himself, which he has given to us in his word. 
and uh, we're considering the Word of God as summarized in the, this confession also, but our focus is uh, particularly on verses 20 through 21 of the fifth chapter of this first epistle of, of John. And uh, kind of an introduction, you might say, to our consideration of this article in specific detail. An introduction to this whole matter of the knowledge of God. Verse 20 begins uh, with this third instance of this language of John here towards the end of this fifth chapter where he says, we know, and we know. In verse 18 we read, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, that is, they do not practice sin as a way of life. And then in verse 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And then in our text, we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And that's a reference to God as him who is true. And if you know something about this epistle to John, you know that uh, John was particularly ad- addressing uh, this uh, heresy called Gnosticism. And uh, as the name itself indicates, it involves a-, a claim to a kind of special knowledge, a kind of uh, esoteric, if you will, a-, a-, a kind of knowledge that is unique to certain individuals who have a kind of uh, insight into the depths of the mysteries of God. And it's really kind of hard to nail down because uh, this heresy itself was was rather mystical and rather hyper-spiritual in a way that is unbiblical, where people claimed a kind of knowledge of God that wasn't really rooted in his word and rooted in the actual historical manifestation of God, particularly in Christ. And that's why we hear in this epistle emphatic emphasis on the fact that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. We know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. That sounds really like a pretty, maybe a bold claim that goes uh, a little bit beyond what uh, many might think is a proper humility to claim confidently such a knowledge of God. It really is an astounding thing. In the in the book of Proverbs, we hear the words of Agar in the, the 30th chapter, where uh, he says in verse 2 and following, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and do not have the, no- the understanding of a man. I neither learn wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is his son's name, if you know? And it appears that uh, uh, the inspired author here is claiming a kind of ignorance of God. Do we really know God? We've read this article which lists the attributes of God. Does the knowledge of God consist in being able to list the attributes of God? Does the knowledge of God consist in being able to say many true things about God? Preach sermons about the attributes of God? There's a sense in which I think, honestly, humbly, realistically, we might all say that we do not know God. Hardly. We know so little of Him in terms of the wonder of His transcendent majesty and glory and our grasp of what He has revealed 
of himself is yet so shallow. We, we truly live in, in the shadow lands in many respects with respect to the knowledge of God. Do we have a heart knowledge of God as, as one whom we deeply revere? One whom we worship with trembling hope and penitential tears at times? Do we know God as one whom we worship in the spirit, in spirit and truth, who, who gives us peace, perfect peace as those whose minds are stayed upon him? Do we know him as one who indeed is working in us, who is able to change us as one who is wise and good in all the circumstances of our present life with their difficulties and trials so that despite them, we have learned or are learning to be content because our Heavenly Father is wise and good and we can trust Him emphatically. Do we know Him as the one who gives to the kind of joy that the world doesn't know? As the one whose bounty, whose beauty sometimes overwhelms us with such gratitude as we are compelled, we are moved to praise and to give thanks to Him from our hearts not only on the formal appropriate occasions of public worship, but in the course of our daily lives as we experience his loving kindness? Do we regard his loving kindness as better than life so that we would prefer to die rather than to dis deny or, or to dishonor him? Now, these questions show, don't they, that uh, for one thing, the true knowledge of God is, is not just theoretical. It's not a matter of giving correct answers to theological questions. It is experiential. It involves a true knowledge of the God who has made us, who upholds us, of the God who will appear, of the God who will break into our mundane, ordinary lives in a spectacular, climactic revelation of his power and glory in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with the clouds of heaven. And we believe that. And that influences our priorities and outlook on life because we know God as true, as the one who is true. That doesn't simply mean that he doesn't lie, but it involves the realization of the profound reality of his existence. He's not just a figment. He's not simply some uh, theological or mysterious theory that people can bandy about. That was the era of Gnosticism. We know him who is true, the living God. And secondly, these questions, I do believe, show that uh, our knowledge of God is yet very shallow. Where our joy is little, we might conclude that, well, so is our knowledge of God. Where our love is weak, couldn't it be said that the same is true of our knowledge of God? Or where our holiness is meager, isn't there a correlation between the depths of our knowledge of God and the way that is actually reflected in our lives? And it may well be that for some, even here tonight, some of these probing questions might lead them uh, to think within themselves, I, I really probably don't know God. I don't know whom, him as one with whom I have a real connection. So that I don't just say prayers, but, but when I pray, there at least are times when the reality of God and his greatness and his goodness profoundly affects my soul to the depths. 
Well, my intention at the beginning is uh, certainly not to be discouraging or to expose simply the the meagerness of our knowledge of God. In fact, if you're even being humbled by these considerations, that's probably an indication that you know God, because the true knowledge of God always involves a recognition that we we know him quite, we do not know him very well, and uh, we want to know him better. And uh, so may we look also with anticipation at learning to know God better as we consider his word concerning the revelation he's given to us of himself. And may we also be profoundly thankful that we do have a true knowledge of God, meager and imperfect as it is. And in knowing God, we presently have eternal life. Isn't that what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer? That you have given him, that is, Christ himself, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We learn, we, we confess as believers the truth of our text uh, this evening, that the Son has given us a knowledge of the true God. And we begin by considering the fact that this is uh, a knowledge that is only through Christ, the Son. Right? That's the language we hear. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. The Son of God has come. That's a reference to the, the objective historical fact of the incarnation, of God manifested in the flesh. It's a reference to the conception and birth and ministry the works and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, His suffering and death and resurrection and ascension, all those things that are considered to be irrelevant by so many religious people who claim to believe in God. Things that were not in the foreground of the faith of these Gnostics. Oh no, their, their knowledge was much more spiritual than to be concerned about these uh, historical flesh and blood details about what happened. No, we know God as revealed in Christ. And without that, the true God remains unknown. Now, it is true. Uh, scripture itself clearly teaches that all people are confronted with the reality of God's existence, even his power and his divinity. They can't escape it. The world about us testifies to the reality of God. And the works of the law, even on the hearts of those who never heard the Ten Commandments, give testimony to the fact that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and they know it. And they're pretty good at judging when it comes to others, but they do the very things that they condemn in others, and God has a certain inescapable, infallible basis upon which to judge the entire world as sinners. Because they know that they have uh, done what is wrong in the sight of God that they try to deny and suppress. But that doesn't mean that General revelation, as I've just described it, is sufficient to bring people to a saving knowledge of God. It leaves them without excuse because they are confronted with his justice. They're confronted with the reality of his divine power. And they're guilty for not honoring him and worshiping him according to the revelation that is given to them. But they're not given to know the way of peace with God, the way of the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to him. Apart from Christ. That's why the church needs to proclaim the gospel to the world. 
so that people might come to know the Savior. And without the knowledge of God in Christ, what is known of Him is not only suppressed, but it's distorted. And people make idols for themselves, literally out of, out of wood and stone, or they fabricate their own theories of God in such a way that they can manage and control Him. But they do not know the true God. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. And that trust, that faith, requires the knowledge of how God is good and gracious and merciful to pardon sin in a way that is truly compatible and in harmony with his justice. Only in Christ is the riches of God's name known. God is love. In chapter 4, that wonderful statement is uh, given twice. In verse uh, 8, again in verse 16, God is love. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that God is love? We sing this hymn. We read thee in the heavens above and earth below and seas that swell and streams that flow. Oh, you read the love of God in those things? Well, that's very good. And indeed, we can read the love of God in those things as those reconciled to God through Christ. But without the knowledge of Christ, can't you read the wrath of God in the heavens above and the earth below? and seize that swell and uh, cause tidal waves and destroy cities and wipe out lives and fires that burn on and on and on. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. And we can read the love of God, yes, in creation, but only through the lens of Scripture. We're able to recognize His goodness and mercy and see His justice without being so terrified by it as to run from Him. We read the best in Him who came to bear for us the cross of shame. In chapter 4, in this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In Christ, and only in Christ, do we see the harmony of God's attributes or those characteristics that make up his eternal being. Only in Christ can we understand how to fully acknowledge the justice and the holiness of God, that he is a God who punishes sin, and yet he is a God of mercy and kindness who is love. Well, how do we fit these things together? Which God are we dealing with? What side of him? Well, it's only in Christ that we we learn of the way in which God manifests His saving love in a way that is in perfect harmony with His righteousness. Because He made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. That we might know that God is just, He doesn't compromise His justice, but He is the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. So that in Christ, we have peace with God. We're reconciled to Him through His gift of His Son. His provision to uphold His truth, to uphold His justice in a way that provides an unshakable foundation for our confidence that he, we are accepted in the Beloved. God doesn't compromise His character to save us. That's only revealed in Christ. In Him only we, we can uh, learn of the, of the wisdom of God. And that wisdom is not simply a matter of His absolute, omniscient, Knowledge of everything, 
But it's the wisdom of His purpose. It's the wisdom of His plan to glorify Himself and His Son in the salvation of sinners. A plan that has been uh, disclosed increasingly throughout history and ultimately fulfilled in the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ, in whom the wisdom of God is manifested, in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Him. And that provides a foundation in which we can we can know that God's purposes are good. Even that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Because His purpose includes their sanctification and their conformity to the image of His Son. And we're assured of that in our own lives through Christ. Only in Christ does the faithfulness of God have meaning. It's a faithfulness to His Word and His promises. It's His covenant faithfulness. Those promises that are all yes and amen in Christ Jesus. You see, without Christ, the attributes of God are simply confusing. His power terrifies people. Or they just simply choose to focus on the idea that God is good and merciful and kind. And then they use that as an excuse to indulge themselves in sin without fear. Telling themselves that, well, God is merciful, he'll forgive. And so they choose. There's no harmony. They don't know how to fit together the inescapable reality of God's power and justice with his love. They, they just live uh, according to a kind of wishful thinking that everything's going to turn out fine in the end. But they have no solid basis on which to know that God's patience and goodness and loving kindness are exercised towards them for good. Christ gives true understanding. The Son of God has given has uh, come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. That includes the work of the Holy Spirit within our minds so that we're able to receive and to uh, apply this revelation, a spiritual understanding. Again, that's more than knowing about God. It's knowing Him. It's, it's believing and knowing His love in such a way as to take it personally. You know, it struck me as we sang Jesus Loves Me this morning together as a congregation, and it occurred to me that for some of us, we've been we, we've been singing it, or we've sung that song for maybe 60 plus 70 years. There's some of you who may be in your 70s or beyond, and you remember singing that song possibly as children. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? To sing that song together with the children. Jesus loves me. What an amazing uh, claim to know that to believe that is something that has to move us has to affect us has to comfort us something that we return to something that we resort to we look to the lord jesus christ as the sure revelation of the love of god and see without without something of that experiential knowledge of god in christ god really remains a stranger to people they don't have a connection with him that's genuine, that's real, that's comfortable, if I may say. Taking in the whole reality of, of what God, or what the Bible says about God and yet to know him as our God, Savior, it's only possible in Christ. Secondly, such knowledge is joined with a saving union with God. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. There's that familiar uh, phrase, in him. That speaks of union. 
and that teaches the closeness of our relationship to God, a living, lasting union through the Holy Spirit. Again, chapter 4 uses this uh, language repeatedly in verses uh, 12 following. It says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. In other words, the reality of God in our lives is not to be secured by some vision. You know, see, people might live in a quest to have some, some vision of God, some experience. And again, John brings it right down to earth and says, by this we know that God abide, abides in us if we love one another. That's how his love is, is manifested and brought to its purpose. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. It's the spirit of God who dwells in us that also assures us and communicates to us the, the richness of this close relationship that we have with God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God abides in him and he in God. That's a very comforting addition, isn't it? Because we may not always feel the closeness of this union. But if we resort to this great and glorious Savior, we confess sincerely from the heart that He is our Savior. We place our trust in Him. Well, what accounts for that? It's the Spirit of God within us. It's the reality of God having come to us in grace. And He abides in us. And we in Him. It's through Christ, the Son of God, that this union takes place. Uh, that's the the special significance of the words of our text, where it seems to repeat something that we might wonder what it actually means. It says, we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. And we might think, well, we are in him who is true. Does that mean him who is true is then further explained by his son, Jesus Christ? In other words, we are in Jesus Christ. And he's described in different ways. Him who is true and Jesus Christ, but it basically means the same, same thing. No, him who is true is a reference to God, and we might think the Father. But we are in him, that is, we are united to him in this spiritual union of fellowship in Jesus Christ. It's by being in Christ that we are in God. I know that's, that's, pro, that's profound, that's mind-boggling. But that's how we are to, we are taught to think of this close relationship that we have with God in Christ. The true knowledge of God involves a saving relationship. Let's bring that down to something that we can more perhaps clearly grasp and, and hold on to. And, and we might see how John really brings us back to the opening verses of, uh, of this, this epistle. I've been told and I've probably repeated it on occasion, that the purpose of this letter is that Christians who believe in um, Christ might know that they believe in him and have assurance. And I'm not saying that that's entirely incorrect, but I think actually the purpose of this letter is deeper and richer than that. And the purpose of this letter is fellowship with God, with, his, with the Father and with the Son through the Holy Spirit. And, of course, such fellowship involves assurance but from the outset, that appears to be the goal. The life was manifested. We have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship 
is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In Him, in Christ, means in fellowship. That is a relationship of communication. You know, communion involves communication. A relationship of, of friendship and, and agreement. We agree with God's Word and the revelation that He has given of Himself. And in that agreement, we agree with the Father in His love for the Son. We agree with the Father in His purpose to reveal the glory of His Son. And we share that purpose now. And we delight in it. And we are receivers of it. Walking together in the light, the light of the truth. Those are the things that characterize this fellowship, this the nearness of this relationship that we have in Christ. The relationship of love. I've mentioned that before. I quoted uh, verse 16 of chapter 4. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Again, there's that language of, of union. We need to remember that throughout our study of the attributes of God, so that when we, when we learn more of the magnitude of his greatness and glory, we are at, at every point brought to say, and this God is my God. This God is the one who loves me and who is near to me. I can speak to him and I can hear his voice. I can listen to his infallible, mighty, life-changing, illuminating, glorious word in this wonderful book. Such knowledge, thirdly, is, includes knowing the deity of the Son. This is the true God, John says at the conclusion of verse 20. And again, that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the antecedent. In other words, that's the last person mentioned. His son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. He's the one, he's described at the op- in the opening words as that which was from the beginning. The one who is called the word of life. You can hear echoes of the opening words of the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the Word was God. It's the Word that was made flesh. John 14 gives us an important uh, background to the wonder of this knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as a manifestation of the true God. In his 14th chapter, the Lord Jesus speaks of that union and communion uh, that uh, we have with the Father and the Son uh, through his his Holy Spirit. He promised the coming of another uh, comforter. I will come to you. And he says, at that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's through the working of the Holy Spirit, communicating uh, the wonder of the glory of Christ himself as one in the Father, but also in a way that involves our union with him. We are in him, and he in us. In fact, By the Holy Spirit, Christ will manifest himself to those who keep his word. Through the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son will come and make their home with us, to dwell within us. Jesus says much of this amazing fellowship and union that we have in him through the work of the Holy Spirit. But he does so as one who 
reveals the Father. In fact, these chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, they, they are, are very much concerned with the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who reveals the Father. He declares his name. I have manifested your name to those whom you have given me out of the world. I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That's the conclusion to this high priestly prayer. He comforts this small group of ordinary men with these lofty, glorious uh, teachings about uh, their relationship with the Father. He comforts them with the assurance that though he is departing from them, he will not be absent from them altogether, but will be closer to them in some sense through the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's gone away to prepare a place for them in his Father's house. And he will come and uh, bring them to himself. And, and they know the way. He said in response to Thomas's question, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then Philip, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And you recall what Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you have not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus Christ is the ultimate manifestation and revelation of God. And we must never forget that in our desire to know God better. His supreme revelation is in the face of Jesus Christ. We need to stay grounded in that, the fact that the fullest, the clearest, the most necessary knowledge which he has given of himself is in his Son. And whatever attribute we consider, it is possessed and revealed by the Son. And and by uh, remembering this focus, this will both exalt Christ and bring God near to us. It will glorify God in the way he wants to be glorified in this manifestation of himself in the Son. And such a knowledge of God then, of course, is grounded on the reality of the deity of the Son. And then fourthly, such knowledge keeps us from idolatry. Our text concludes with that exhortation. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. And here John gets uh, very practical. The knowledge of God comes down to who or what you will worship. It's not a matter of Will you worship? Oh, you will worship. We are worshiping beings. Everyone worships something or someone. We gathered uh, together this evening to worship God. And uh, on the way, or perhaps as we parked our car and walked to church, we saw a lot of excited people on their way to a worship service. Big sports event. They get excited about this kind of stuff. Now, we might get excited in the sense that we enjoy a good game, but sadly our world thinks that those things are really worth getting excited about. The knowledge of God in Christ, that's a different story. People worship. They worship whatever they consider to be most valuable, the things that give them pleasure, the things that they judge to be most important in their lives, the things that they fear the most, the things that they trust in the most, whatever it might be, that's their God. And the true knowledge of God is incompatible with anything but the living God holding the supreme place in our hearts. Whether it's possessions or, or pursuits, goals that we have, or people in our lives, whoever, whatever, 
would hold the supreme place in our affections, in our hearts, in effect, is our God. You see, that idolatry involves a whole lot more than bowing down to wood and stone or just worshiping material things, worshiping mammon. And we're exhorted to beware of idolatry as God's children. It's a loving appeal to us because we have this tendency, don't we? We have this tendency to forget God. There's this creep that always takes place in our life. That I, I, I don't mean a literal creep. I mean the advance, the, the, the insidious progression of the love of the world or an obsession with things in such a way that can remove, move off at a distance the reality of God. So that, yeah, we might still do our devotions and go to church, but to delight in him, to uh, not only take the time, but treasure the time of worship and spending time with God. Yeah, we have to fight the flesh. The, fight, the flesh offers no resistance. It doesn't rebel against sitting down to watch an entertaining movie, sitting down to read a really good book that will do good to your soul. Well, you have to overcome a hurdle, right? Because the flesh rebels, and we have to resist this tendency to put other things in the way of our worship and service of God. You see, if, if people uh, succumb to idolatry in terms of placing things or their goals or purposes above the living God, that will invariably influence their view of God. In other words, they will not simply worship uh, idols, substitutes for God, but they'll distort the truth about God in order to uh, give them some comfort as they worship their idols. And so uh, uh, being aware and, be, and, and avoiding idolatry also means avoiding popular views of God that really involve a kind of idol, a distortion in place of the true and living God. Any claim to know and to love God apart from uh, the Christ of Scripture, apart from a cross, it's an idol. There's a sense in which the, the bulk of this message was about the fact that we know God truly in Christ, only in Him, as He manifested Himself to us as gracious but for people to think that they can go merrily along their way and just take comfort in the fact that God is merciful and he's kind and they're going to go to heaven because that's where most people go when they die unless they're really, really wicked and they're not like that. But they don't place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've made an idol for themselves. The idea that people can have the assurance of, of salvation without repentance and faith, well, they're not worshiping the true and living God. We could give other examples. Some people think that God just accepts anyone and everyone just as they are and leaving them right where they are. God accepts all who come to him, no matter what their background, no matter how great their sins. And yes, he receives sinners, but he doesn't just leave them as they are. He gives them his spirit and teaches them to walk in his ways. And if they claim to have fellowship with God and they don't do that, well, they're liars not the living God that they are worshiping. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And positively, that means hold fast to God in Christ. Yes, God holds fast to you, to every true believer. We are kept by the power of God, but we're kept by the power of God. Also, through faith, the Lord keeps alive within our hearts a belief in his Son, trusting in him, seeking him. Amen.